This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Victoria Lupashko, one of the hosts for the New Books Network. And today we are here with Dr. Chinmay Murali, Senior Research Fellow in the Department of Humanities and Social Sciences at the National Institute of Technology, Trichy, India. Hello and welcome to our channel. Oh, hello, Victoria. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for this wonderful opportunity. I'm really excited to talk about my book with you today. I'm very excited too, and thank you for agreeing to talk to us about your new book, Infertility Comics and Graphic Medicine, written in collaboration with Dr. Satya Raj Ben. Um, I'm. I hope I don't pronounce this wrong. So it's Satya Raj Venkatshan. Yes, and, you got it right. Satyaraj Yes. Perfect. And um, this book was published in 2021 by Routledge, um, and I'm very excited about it. Uh, but, you know, before I want, I, I'll ask you questions that pertain directly to the book, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your work and how you came to know it and how you, you, you came to it. So could you please tell us more about this project, how you got interested in infertility and its representation in graphic novels, graphic medicine and medical humanities in general? Um, well, um, how I got my interest in the topic of my book, uh, that is the representation of infertility in graphic medicine, uh, I think uh, is a good question to start with. Uh, you know, uh, as a student of English literature, um, I have always been fascinated uh, by uh, literary narratives on illness, such as uh, Leo Tolstoy's The Death of Ivan Illich and Albert Camus' uh, The Plague. So uh, as an undergraduate student, I also happen to enjoy reading theoretical ruminations on uh, illness, uh, such as uh, Susan Sontag's uh, seminal uh, text on cancer representations, illness as metaphor. So uh, right from my um, English bachelor's time, I have been curious about the intersections of illness, medicine, and uh, literary studies in some sense. So uh, I just want to tell you that the interest has always been there. And um, much later, when I joined the National Institute of Technology, Trichy, for my um, doctoral research, I was lucky enough 
to be mentored by um, Dr. Satyaraj Venkateshan. Uh, you know, Dr. Venkateshan had a lot of interest in medical humanities, and uh, it was he who introduced me to the exciting field of graphic medicine. Um, uh, in simple uh, terms, uh, graphic medicine is an emerging interdisciplinary field where the medium of comics intersects with the discourse of health and illness. Um, although initially had I had very limited knowledge in comic studies, uh, graphic medicine really piqued my interest and, uh, and I started reading autobiographical comics on illness, uh, which are also called uh, uh, graphic uh, pathographies. Uh, so alongside these narratives, I had also gone through the graphic medicine manifesto, uh, which uh, in a sense inaugurated this field. And other key texts and articles on graphic, um, uh, graphic medicine, narrative medicine, and health humanities. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, this practice allowed me to build a broader theoretical perspective on uh, the visual representations of uh, various illness experiences. Uh, uh, among various uh, graphic medicine narratives I examined as part of my research, uh, I, was, I was particularly moved by women's graphic memoirs on infertility. And uh, uh, one of the reasons why um, I was specifically drawn to these narratives uh, was the cultural silence surrounding uh, women's infertility. Um, uh, as you know, uh, infertility is mostly a taboo topic in mainstream discourses. And secondly, women are often forced to bear uh, the cultural and medical burden of infertility uh, even though uh, uh, it is a gender-neutral uh, health problem. Uh, so I was really fascinated by these memoirs, uh, which uh, I thought um, essentially foregrounded the gendered and tabooed nature of the author's uh, lived experience of uh, infertility. So I decided to focus my research on uh, women's infertility memoirs and, uh, uh, and ended up writing my book, uh, based on my uh, findings. That's great. And I have to, to agree that, you know, the, the graphic medicine manifesto, pathographics, and, you know, all the books that came out in the, in the last, let's say, five years have contributed to the establishment of the field and, you know, have put our interest, but, you know, also curiosity on a different scale. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm very happy to hear these titles as well, because, you know, I was, I was interested as uh, in, in them. And of course, I read them. Great, and, great to know that. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, so, you know, I, I wanted to, to start with the introduction chapter, right? Because uh, in addition to positioning the book vis-a-vis -vis the larger extent, uh, extent scholarship, you propose the term gynographics to denote a visual narrative that centers on female reproductive quandaries. And, um, you know, I was very, very interested in this term, and I would like to invite you to tell us more about this concept and your perspective on its theoretical work for medical or health humanities, as well as for literary and visual studies. So how do you define this field, subfield of, of graphic medicine? What, what's your take on it? Well, that, that's an interesting question. Uh, I consider the term gynographics. Uh, which uh, we proposed in the book's introduction as uh, one of the significant and original contributions of my work 
towards graphic medicine and uh, health humanities scholarship. So apart from uh, women's infertility memoirs, my research has identified a growing corpus of uh, graphic medicine narratives uh, that uh, center on the quandaries of women's reproductive experiences, uh, such as uh, miscarriage, uh, abortion, uh, postpartum depression, uh, menopause, and uh, lesbian pregnancy. So uh, among such narratives are uh, Adrian Shepard's Significant Laws, uh, A.K. Summers' uh, graphic memoir, uh, Pregnant Butch, uh, Lucy Knisley's uh, Kid Glouse, and, and Therese Wong's uh, Dear Scarlet, uh, with the most recent edition being M.K. Servick's Eisner Award-winning anthology, Menopause, uh, which I think you have already mentioned in your question. So uh, I feel that these narratives are peculiar in that they address nuanced and often silenced issues centered on the complexities of uh, female reproduction uh, from a uniquely subjective and lived uh, perspective. Um, uh, it's in this context that uh, we introduce the term gynographics uh, uh, to denote these visual texts that center on female reproductive uh, quantities. Uh, now, um, etymologically, the term uh, evolves from gyno, which means relating to women or female reproduction, and, and graphics, uh, which uh, connotes images or uh, visual representations. So uh, the term gynographics uh, may be conceived as an addition to uh, critical vocabulary on female-centric uh, literary or uh, uh, theoretical approaches with similar terminologies such as uh, gynocriticism and gynocentrism. Uh, uh, see, uh, while gynocriticism was a term uh, coined by feminist critic uh, Elaine Showalter in the 1970s, uh, to foreground the need to have a uniquely female framework in the analysis of texts authored by women. Uh, uh, the term gynocentrism has been in uh, theoretical parlance as a term that encapsulates uh, female-centric uh, perspectives or rather the advocacy of it. Uh, so, though gynographics is related to the aforementioned terms, both gynocentrism and gynocriticism, um, in its attention on the female, uh, it uh, particularly focuses on a unique aspect of feminine experience, uh, that is reproduction. So, uh, so, in a similar vein, as a subgenre of graphic medicine, uh, gynographics is related, yet different uh, from women's comics in general and comics and visual narratives uh, that address other uh, female health quandaries such as breast cancer and eating disorders. So uh, today, now I firmly believe that the term is going to be a valuable addition to uh, critical vocabulary on graphic medicine, uh, women's life writing, and and finally the health humanities in general. Absolutely, and especially you know, as I was as you were talking, I was thinking about the fact that um, you know the the term also creates a space where these taboos subjects right and where the the silence you. 
almost critical silence, um, you know, can be broken. And then we can start talking about, uh, you know, the, these issues as they are. And of course, while the, the female reproductive system and, you know, uh, women are uh, the center here, we also can include, right, all the other adjacent and intersectional aspects of uh, reproduction, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yes. Uh, sorry, did I? Did you want to say something? No, 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 no. That okay. Was, no, no. I just wanted to say what you said is absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. Yes. Perfect. And uh, yeah, in chapter one, to, just to go uh, in a little bit more details, I think uh, once you set the, the the tone and you you set the field up right with with this term that it's it's very important. In chapter one, uh, entitled "Visualizing Illness: Comics and Graphic Medicine," you establish the scope of this book in more detail, right? So we get into the the, the meat of the argument, uh, to say so, and you engage with the importance of graphic medicine. And here, the the chapter mentions that. It focuses on the disruptive potential of graphic medicine in furthering the aims of health, humanities, and narrative medicine to develop a patient-centered and value-based discourse on medicine and uh, healthcare. Uh, and that was a quote from page 10. So I was curious to know more about this disruptive capacity that graphic novels possess, in your opinion, and about their positioning as a genre in the field of literature and or narrative medicine. Uh, I think this is an important question, uh, as you rightly uh, pointed out. Uh, one of the central arguments of my book is that graphic medicine has a unique potential to challenge the status quo in multiple ways. Uh, in fact, uh, the field of graphic medicine is uh, primarily inspired by the subversive legacy of the underground comics movement, which uh, flourished in the 1960s uh, following the comics censorship in the US. Um, uh, the comics underground has not only challenged the thematic orthodoxies, but also criticized the status quo through comics that boldly explored taboo subjects and sociocultural issues. Um, interestingly, uh, uh, when we look at underground comics and graphic medicine in relation to each other, uh, uh, Justin Green's underground comics text, Binky Brown Meets the Holy Virgin Mary, which deals with his struggles with obsessive compulsive disorder and Catholic guilt, is often considered as a prototype of contemporary graphic medicine narratives. So um, uh, inspired by this uh, legacy of underground comics, uh, graphic medicine uh, foregrounds uh, taboo themes and marginal perspectives of the patients, uh, which are often neglected in the medical uh, discourse. Uh, uh, in fact, graphic medicine uh, follows the central tenets of narrative medicine and therefore offers a creative space for uh, patients uh, to articulate the phenomenological and lived realities of illness and, and, and suffering, uh, thereby according what we call a discursive significance to their marginal perspectives. So as I have noted elsewhere, uh, the field of graphic medicine uh, inaugurates a new politics of critique, challenge, and resistance uh, in the field of healthcare, uh, by uh, dwelling upon a wide range of issues, including medical negligence, industrialization and commercialization of healthcare, patient identity, medical apathy, and, uh, and 
doctor-patient relationship, uh, among others. Right, and I think this is even even more important um, now, right in the in the pandemic, and of course once uh, once we we surpass it, uh, to talk about a doctor-patient. Uh, relationship uh, to talk about unheard voices to talk about uh, you know what what happens when when you don't have access to to proper medical care whether that's healthcare in general or uh, mental health care or you know whatever it is and I think you know having this this uh, theoretical uh, background and having this this place where we can talk about it bo- both in visual form and in narrative form uh, and bringing them together it's actually very valuable. Um, and it's becoming more and more valuable as we, we, we go through 21st century. Um, yes, and since you mentioned the pandemic situation, uh, it's also interesting to note that there is a growing corpus of graphic medicine narratives uh, which uh, uh, discuss the theme of, uh, of uh, the, I mean, the impact of pandemic and related issues. And recently, uh, an anthology of comics on the pandemic, on, uh, on the pandemic and uh, its various experiences was published titled COVID Chronicles. And uh, the the anthology was published by Penn State University Press. So uh, graphic medicine, of course, responds to the pandemic in its own way. And so it's also interesting to look at these narratives and how these narratives, in a sense, encapsulate uh, our predicament um, experiencing or making sense of the pandemic. Um, and and it's very uh, experiential realities. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And you know, as you mentioned, Connie Chronicles. Um, I just finished a book um, about women in the pandemic, uh, specifically in Canada. So um, it's 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 a um, a journalistic type of, of book that, and you know, it's is the traditional narrative type. Um, so it's not uh, in, in visual form in any way, but it definitely uh, brings right more more items to the conversation about women's roles in uh, such a such a planetary endeavor, and you know what what happens with medical systems and and the sort. Um, so you know, of I thought course, I would of mention. Of course, it does, and it's also important to have such conversations going. Um, so because the marginal communities and women are mostly affected by the pandemic. So that also uh, throws up a, a wide range of, uh, um, I mean, uh, topics or themes that could be discussed in relation to the experience of pandemic in relation to your sex, gender, and uh, uh, the communities from where you, uh, I mean, uh, your community. So those are important questions that we need to, uh, we need to address, yes. Sure, I absolutely agree. And, um, you know, speaking of representation and, um, you know, groups, uh, whether minority groups, majority groups, and so on, um, in Chapter 2, entitled Imagining the Barren, Cultural Representation of Women's Infertility, um, you know, the, the, the chapter itself, it's very invested in recognizing the cultural role graphic memoirs on infertility play in destigmatizing female infertility. Um, so here, you know, I wanted to invite you to tell us more about how this process of doing away with stigma happens, especially in women's autobiographical narratives on infertility. 
Uh, yes, in the second chapter, uh, my aim was to examine the politics of representation uh, in the context of uh, female infertility. And to this end, uh, uh, this chapter specifically scrutinizes diverse popular cultural texts uh, spread across various media and journals, such as women's magazines, novels, advertisements, TV, melodramas, horror films, and uh, and reality TV shows. Uh, and through a detailed analysis of these pop culture texts, um, I argue that uh, these mainstream representations of infertility uh, reinforce dominant stereotypes and erroneous perceptions uh, surrounding uh, the problem. Uh, uh, finally, the chapter demonstrates how women's autobiographical narratives on infertility, uh, specifically memoirs, uh, generate uh, what we call a counter discourse uh, to the stigmatizing popular uh, cultural representations of infertility. Uh, uh, such uh, personal articulations uh, uh, wherein uh, authors foreground their lived experience of uh, infertility uh, not only uh, subvert uh, dominant stereotypes, uh, but also accord a cultural agency uh, to the hitherto marginal perspectives on uh, uh, women's in infertility. Now, uh, coming to a question as to how uh, women's um, autobiographical narratives uh, counter existing stereotypes and stigma surrounding infertility, uh, I think uh, we need to pay closer attention to uh, some of these uh, texts. Uh, take uh, Paulette Alden's memoir, Crossing the Moon, for instance. Uh, so in this particular memoir, uh, Alden, uh, the author, not only recounts her long and painful period of mourning and coping with infertility, but also affirms how writing, along with the support of the family and other uh, childless women, um, enable her to overcome the grief and to enjoy and and appreciate uh, life uh, without children. Uh, and then uh, Billy Borg's memoir, The Art of Waiting, uh, on, on the other hand, uh, offers diverse perspectives on infertility, uh, ranging from uh, tracing the depiction of infertility in literature and film to uh, reporting the experience and re reflections of those who navigated the crisis of infertility. Um, um, additionally, Box also documents uh, the work of uh, self-help groups, uh, global online communities, infertility communities, and uh, also organizations such as Resolve in alleviating the pain of infertile women. Uh, interestingly, we also have memoirs such as Anita Jayadevan's Malicious Medicine, which depicts the experience of infertility uh, in a non-Western uh, cultural environment. Uh, Jayadevan's narrative uh, is in fact a horrifying account of the author's experience of malpractice in an infertility clinic in India. Uh, in this particular memoir, uh, Malicious Medicine, uh, Jayadevan painfully recounts eight harrowing years of her life undergoing treatment for infertility and the hurt and violence such an experience uh, engendered um, in her. 
uh, and uh, when you look at uh, Jaydevan's memoir, it concludes with the author's plea for a code of law uh, in India to regulate uh, ART treatments um, uh, uh, so that other women are, sp are spared from the anguish and malpractice that she uh, had to experience. Uh, again, uh, we have memoirs like Anne Mary's Holly's Motherhood Winked, uh, which uh, is sort of a social commentary on the impact of infertility on the sufferers and the role of the society in the modern uh, digital age in both alleviating and aggravating their uh, suffering. As such, uh, the memoir uh, offers coping strategies for uh, those who go through infertility and its attendant uh, socio-cultural uh, challenges. Uh, finally, we do have memoirs such as uh, uh, Elizabeth Katkin's Conceivability and Callie Mick's The Baby Binder, uh, which are armed uh, with a wealth of information on uh, fertility science uh, that the authors have gained through their personal uh, experiences. So uh, while Katkin's attempts to seek answers for her unexplained infertility uh, enables her to present a comprehensive account of uh, infertility treatments around the globe, uh, mixed narrative, on the other hand, uh, laments the insensitive uh, public responses uh, to women's uh, reproductive uh, failures. Uh, in a sense, I argue that these memoirs with a nuanced and subjective representation of infertility uh, perform a cultural work of uh, removing the myths and stigma uh, surrounding infertility and uh, related uh, um, uh, reproductive disorders in women. In doing so, these personal um, uh, articulations or renditions of infertility uh, become what Thomas Cooser uh, uh, terms this quality of life writing, uh, by which he means the body of life narratives, which has a great potential uh, to demystify and destigmatize the conditions it uh, recounts uh, from the inside. So in the book, I also use theoretical insights uh, from feminist critics like Elizabeth Wilson uh, to contend that it is the liberative power of life writing as a feminist literary genre which uh, allows these memoirs uh, to uh, uh, challenge the stigma and uh, stereotypes uh, surrounding uh, women's infertility. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline.
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Absolutely. And I think it does also uh, create um, communities, right, around either writing or, you know, the, the illustrations or the, the, uh, the practice, right, of, of uh, illustrating um, and also, you know, of readership. So um, I think it, it, ha- it, it engenders, right, this type of narratives engender a lot of um, small groups and there's a lot of uh, grassroots movement. Uh, that aims right towards destigmatization and doing away with all these these taboos and stigma that fall on women's uh, bodies. So yes, you know. yes, yes, mm-hmm. of course. But and building a community of sufferers, those who share the same condition, uh, is an important aspect or, or or one of the central concerns of uh, graphic medicine as a movement. And we also have such communities created by authors and artists by sharing their stories. Uh, in the visual uh, forum of uh, graphic medicine, and we are uh, we are uh, we always look forward to uh, reading such experiences of people who share uh, uh, some kind of uh, an experience of illness and the ways in which graphic medicine uh, forms uh, such communities of sufferers who can who can empathize or who can even share their stories and and with those stories. Uh, we can also, uh, and those stories also perform uh, the role of uh, uh, what you call instructional manuals, because uh, those stories can inform people in different ways. And uh, uh, and sharing the experience of uh, one suffering uh, will be cathartic to the sufferer, but also, but it also performs uh, a, a different a different role. It informs others who uh, go through uh, uh, similar conditions or similar experiences. So uh, community building, of course, uh, forms a central uh, part of uh, graphic medicine's uh, mission. So that's very important in the context of graphic pathographies and uh, people who share uh, their stories of uh, illness and suffering. Yes. I absolutely agree. Yeah, and I think we, we with this um, we, we get into um, you know the the range of the third chapter uh, entitled the hegemonic creations, pronatalism, and the social construction of motherhood. Um, and here the chapter draws on graphic narratives by Paula Knight, uh, specifically on the memoir called The Facts of Life. And here we see a discussion of socially constructed and gendered uh, nature of motherhood. And, you know, I, I was very curious and I, I totally agree with, with the argument um, about the ways in which um, you use uh, Louise Althusser's and Ellen Peck's and Judith Sendovitz, uh, just to name a few, theoretical positions in relation to Knight's memoir to talk about identity in relation, right, to motherhood and the constraints that maternal ideologies actually put on the artist, put on the mother to be, and so on. Yes, uh, uh, this is in fact the first analytical chapter of the book, 
where I close read uh, Paula Knight's graphic memoir on infertility, The Facts of Life. Uh, so in her memoir, Knight not only illustrates her struggle with infertility and her subsequent sub psychic turmoil, but also challenges the normative structures of the maternal and the feminine, which uh, deem her non-mother identity marginal and, uh, and deviant. Uh, in doing so, I argue that Knight's narrative uh, lays bare the patriarchal and misogynistic nature of uh, pronatalist institutions and discourses that enervate and stigmatize the childless. Uh, and, and the theoretical framework which I use to analyze Knight's memoir uh, draws uh, primarily on Louis Althusser's concept of ideology and ideological state apparatus and Ellen Peck and Judith Sendrovitz's theorization of uh, pronatalism as an oppressive uh, social force. Uh, uh, in addition to this, um, I have also borrowed theoretical templates from feminists such as Simone de Bouvet and Anne Snitto. And I think it would be interesting here to discuss how I use their theoretical positions uh, in relation to uh, uh, Knight's memoir or to, or to uh, read uh, or to make sense of uh, uh, Knight's uh, visualization of her uh, psychic and physical pain uh, occasioned by uh, infertility. So uh, in their book, uh, Pronatalism, uh, the myth of mom and apple pie, um, Peck and Sandrovitz uh, define um, pronatalism as any attitude or policy that is pro-birth, uh, that encourages reproduction, and that exalts the role of parenthood. And uh, they also frame pronatalism uh, as, as an unquestioned social force, uh, which has produced both the universal uh, parenthood ideal and its attendant uh, discriminations. Um, uh, in fact, uh, pronatalism entwines womanhood and motherhood and mandates that women's fulfillment uh, lies in her maternal role. Um, according to uh, Peck and Sandrovitz, uh, pronatalist thought uh, permeates uh, mainstream discourses and institutions which uh, for them valorize motherhood and stigmatize uh, women's non-mother identity. Uh, when we examine uh, Knight's memoir, uh, we uh, also find that the author launches a strident critique of the pronatalist uh, ideology uh, for enforcing cultural otherhood on childless women like her. Uh, Knight also illustrates the social conditioning uh, through which uh, uh, she internalized uh, pronatal sentiments as a young girl. Uh, in the memoir, uh, Knight uh, specifically foregrounds the role of institutions and discourses, including family, education, and uh, media in shaping uh, pronatal subjectivities. Uh, it was in this context that I use Althusser's uh, notion of ideology and its impact on individuals and societies. Uh, ideology, according to Althusser, operates through what he terms ideological state apparatuses, such as educational institutions, uh, religious organizations, uh, family and the media which uh, interpolate individuals as subjects. 
and uh, uh, drawing upon the Althusserian formulation of ideology, uh, Judith Butler affirms that uh, gender identities are constructed within such ostensibly apolitical social formations where the girl child is girled. That is the term uh, she uses, girled, the girling of the girl child. Um, so that happens in the family, that happens uh, in educational institutions, religious org organizations, and the media. So it's a complex process of uh, social conditioning, which uh, actually works through uh, ideological apparatuses, uh, including uh, uh, educational institutions and uh, and religious organization and so on, where uh, uh, this process of girling the girl child happens. Uh, so uh, interestingly, Butler's notion of ideological interpolation in gender theory is partly inspired by uh, Bouet's formulation uh, um, that uh, feminine uh, uh, is not a natural condition, but rather a form of becoming through uh, cultural uh, conditioning. Uh, to quote uh, the Bouet, uh, uh, one is not born, but rather becomes a woman. Uh, it is the civilization as a whole that produces this creature, which is described as feminine." Unquote. So uh, read through such a theoretical lens, uh, Knight's narrative uh, delineates the ideological interpolations within social formations that manipulate individuals into subjects of pronatalism. Uh, as such, um, uh, I observe that the narrative illustrates the role of ideological apparatuses, including family and education, in a girl child's uh, pronatalist uh, subjectification. Uh, uh, citing the subjective experience of her uh, uh, upbringing um, in England, uh, Knight arranges the socio-cultural instruments of pronatalism uh, that mediate and dominate her mental landscape in uh, in, in myriad ways. So uh, these are uh, some of the ways in which I use theoretical insights of Althusser, uh, Peck, Sandrovitz, and others in in my reading of. Uh, Knight's uh, visual uh, memoir. I think that is very, very uh, important, and it's um, it's a still you know ongoing topic of of talking about the the girling of the girl child, right, and the ideological interpolation, uh, of course, of the constraints of the maternal ideology and so on in in many other societies as well um, that emphasize right the the pronatalist uh, approach. So um, I, I found that very, very useful to talk about other societies as well, um, you know, outside of the UK or outside North America. Um, so I would, you know, take take the chapter to even further to to analyze other um, great, instances. Great. Good to know that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, oh yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Eastern Europe, specifically Romania, it's uh, it's pretty similar in that sense. Uh, but you know, not to 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 go too far in that argument. Um, but you know, I wanted to to move to chapter four and to talk about the um, its title, right? The infertile body in the clinic, medicalization and loss of agency, uh, because specifically agency and medicalization are big big topics when we're, we're talking about our bodies. 
And I think the chapter here brings into um, brings us uh, into even more examples of graphic memoirs and expands uh, the conversation by talking about the clinical encounter between the female body and the highly sanitized and patriarchically encoded space, uh, specifically the hospital or the fertility clinic. And um, I was thinking whether you could share with us some of the key moments in this chapter. Of course. So uh, uh, in this particular chapter, I have attempted to delineate the perils of medicalization uh, in the context of uh, female infertility. Uh, So the focus of this particular chapter is on the lack of female agency in the clinical experience of infertility uh, when the sufferer, uh, the infertile woman, is reduced to the status of a docile body under an authoritative and uh, and penetrative medical eye. As you said, uh, this chapter examines multiple texts, unlike the previous chapter, which focused more on uh, Paula Knight's uh, narrative, The Facts of Life. Uh, this chapter uh, close reads texts such as uh, Phoebe Potts' Good Eggs, Emily Steinberg's Drocken Eggs, and it also includes uh, Paula Knight's The Facts of Life in its analysis, and, uh, and we also have uh, General Johnson's uh, short comic on her infertility experience, uh, titled Present Perfect. So as such, the chapter examines how these memoirs, using comics, uh, subjectively foreground the hurt and estrangement they experience in a misogynist and technologized system of infertility care. Uh, In this context, I also argue that these graphic medicine narratives foreground nuanced issues such as loss of privacy, uh, technological intrusion, and objectification uh, that cause uh, irreparable harm to women and jeopardize their identity as as, uh, patients. Um, Speaking of the theoretical framework of this chapter, uh, I have extensively used uh, insights uh, from the feminist critique of medicine, uh, specifically reproductive medicine, because uh, uh, the book is uh, basically about uh, infertility and women's uh, reproductive experiences. Uh, so ideas of feminist scholars of medicine, such as Emily Martin, uh, Deborah Steinberg, and Mary Daly, along with medical sociologists, including Michelle Foucault and Deborah Lapton, I uh, have informed my readings uh, of these narratives uh, in this particular chapter in diverse ways. Uh, here, when we look at the contemporary feminist critique of reproductive medicine, we find that it is centered primarily on the technological intrusion of uh, women's bodies made possible by uh, ARTs. Um, um, feminists note that ARTs uh, uh, which means assisted reproductive technologies, under the guise of according women reproductive choice, uh, make their reproductive lives available for uh, for medical manipulation. So as explained in this chapter, a similar critique of reproductive medicine could be found in uh, infertility memoirs authored by women as well. Uh, these narratives, uh, when you look at them carefully, foreground the author's dehumanizing and estranging encounters in the infertility clinic. And so utilizing comics and for dances, uh, these graphic takes um, um, 
accentuate uh, the memory's psychological turmoil of undergoing treatment, uh, that too in a system of care uh, that is unsympathetic and, uh, and intrusive. Uh, while when we look at uh, uh, these uh, particular, I mean, these uh, texts, uh, uh, liter- I mean, uh, visual memoirs, uh, uh, Steinberg's narrative um, attempts a forthright critique of infertility care, which uh, treats her like a, a fertility guinea pig. Uh, this is a, is a metaphor which uh, she uses uh, to convey the kind of hurt or the kind of uh, dehumanizing experience uh, she had in the experience uh, in the in the infertility clinic, and uh, she uh, compares uh, herself uh, to a guinea pig in a in a lab. So, uh, and we have other narratives like Johnson, General Johnson's short comic uh, Present Perfect, uh, uh, which explores the ontology of hurt and estrangement uh, that the treatments engender. Uh, in the on the author, um, uh, parallels could be found in um, other narratives uh, uh, like Broken Eggs and Present Perfect, as both these narratives explore nuanced issues concerning infertility care, such as technological invasion of women's bodies and medical apathy. Uh, in a sense, uh, the chapter argues that um, uh, these authors lend a voice to the to the alienating experiences of women whose bodies and lives are exposed, excised, and manipulated uh, by an authoritarian and misogynistic uh, system of infertility care. Indeed, indeed, you're right. And, uh, you know, the, the ways in which the, the space, right, it's, it's patriarchically encoded, you know, the, the gaze, right, that it's, um, uh, you know, uh, lands upon the, the women's bodies and so on. So all of this make for, for you know, very uh, impactful narratives. Um, and, of course, the, the analysis in the chapter brings, brings these details even more to the fore. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I was very... Uh, uh, very touched, right, by by all of uh, all of the stories, um, and uh, you know, going to towards chapter five, um, uh, I was very happy to to see you know the the word uh, alternatives and endurance and you know traversing uh, all of this in a way uh, or another, and all of these are are in the title of the chapter called traversing infertility, endurance, and alternatives. And here we we see a conversation between the notion of positive coping practices um, and uh, all of the, the the other concepts we've we've read about in the other chapters. So what are um, a few examples of such practices, positive coping practices uh, in this case, and how do they contribute to the building of a non-mother identity? Uh, It's great to know that uh, you like the title of the chapter, Traversing, Endurance, and Alternatives. Finally, we have these terms, and as a reader, uh, you enjoyed, uh, I mean, uh, you you were relieved to find these terms. That's what I, I understand. Yes. Uh, you know, yes. Uh, so, you know, when we look at uh, women who go through the experience of infertility, uh, we realize that uh, coping with the psychic or emotional uh, challenges of infertility uh, is a daunting task uh, for most of them. Uh, this is because infertile women are alienated not only from their uh, familiar socio-cultural landscapes, 
but also from their idealized notions of uh, self-identity. So traversing the challenges of infertility demands tremendous effort uh, from the sufferers who are expected to refashion their identities uh, to the practical and effective challenges of uh, childlessness in a, uh, in a, in a pronatal uh, cultural landscape. So here comes the insignificance of positive coping mechanisms and practices, uh, which uh, I thought would enable childless women to successfully navigate the crisis of infertility and, and thereby positively embrace their uh, non-mother identity. Uh, in such a context, the concept of resilience uh, through which uh, the sufferers positively adapt to their infertile subjectivity um, uh, uh, serves as an adequate method of coping. Uh, therefore, the fifth chapter of the book examines the, uh, uh, um, the concept of resilience and coping in the, in the context of uh, female infertility. Uh, specifically, the chapter uh, close reads uh, two narratives, uh, poets, good eggs, and, uh, and Knight's Facts of Life, uh, to illustrate how the authors successfully navigate uh, the psychic challenges of infertility through, their, through a positive coping uh, practice. So, uh, when you look at these narratives, uh, uh, after going through a brief period of grief and mourning, um, both the authors successfully attempt a refashioning of their identity, uh, also drawing on their values and goals to find hope and meaning in life and existence. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's an existential predicament to be a childless wo woman uh, in, a, in a pronatal uh, cultural landscape. So it requires a lot of energy, a lot of uh, effort from the sufferer to navigate the crisis of childlessness. So uh, both the artists recognize the significance of artistic creativity uh, in their coping practice. And I found that very interesting. Um, uh, so because uh, both these women are, uh, are cartoonists or illustrators or comics creators. So uh, while uh, poets approaches her infertility in spiritual and creative terms, uh, Knight affirms uh, the role of art and the natural world in coming to terms with her uh, non-mother identity. Um, so Goodex reveals how Poets, uh, the author, uh, draws impetus from her Jewish faith and its uh, storytelling practices, which inspire her to narrate her own story of infertility and uh, she uh, and approach and approaches her infertility in metaphysical uh, terms. So there is a particular visual, there is a particular panel uh, in uh, in Phoebe Pott's memoir, the good uh, in uh, good decks, uh, where we see Pott's uh, drawing her memoir. In that sense, the narrative is self-reflexive in some sense. So. Uh, so, and we also have a, a religious appraisal of the situation where she, uh, you, she also uses um, uh, her uh, Jewish spirituality and uh, its belief systems to, uh, to come to terms with her predicament of childlessness. So, uh, with a religious uh, reappraisal of childlessness, 
poets perceives her journey of infertility as a source of spiritual growth and, and transformation. So uh, that's one interesting aspect of illness narratives, uh, that uh, the experience of illness uh, uh, brings about a radical transformation in the individual. So he will be a changed uh, person. So uh, th that is uh, the philosophical uh, role or the philosophical significance or the uh, uh, of, of illness experiences. It changes you as an individual. So, uh, so you might, uh, you might look at life, you might look at your own identity in different ways. So uh, the experience of illness can be transformative and can be useful at times. So Knight's narrative, uh, uh, when we look at Knight's narrative, attains a special significance as it demonstrates the possibility of uh, self-realization and personal growth in the process of coping with infertility. Uh, with an affirmation of her artistic self and a renewed interest in nature and wildlife, not only Knight uh, uh, not only sublimates her infertile predicament, but also refashions her identity and priorities in uh, uh, creative uh, terms. Uh, in addition to that, uh, Knight's creative adaptation uh, of her infertile subjectivity uh, through a dedicated pursuit of art and the natural world also signifies the possibilities of alternative mothering practices which can create transformative changes in the sufferer uh, by, uh, by channeling her uh, disappointment of uh, childlessness into, into triumph. So we have two successful coping practices in these two narratives. Uh, while Ports uses a religious beliefs, spiritual practices, and artistic creativity as a coping method, uh, Knight dedicates herself, herself to art and ecology, uh, which, uh, in a sense, uh, serves uh, for uh, serves as a as a successful uh, coping practice. Absolutely, yeah, and um, you know, it's um, it's. I think it, it brings into into conversation the the use of uh, right art and the the approach to and reapproachment towards uh, nature right as coping mechanisms in many other um, illness instances or you know overcoming illness instances and uh, I thought it's a it's a good um, way to you know get to it in chapter five the last chapter of of the book um and you know i have a lot of other questions but i wanted to ask you if there's anything else that you would like to add here that we have not covered so far um I, no, no nothing in particular i think uh, we have been able to discuss at length almost all the central uh, concerns of the book yes Perfect. And, you know, I'm, I'm very curious. So I just wanted to ask you, um, what are your projects right now? What are your current uh, current projects that you, you're dedicating yourself to right now? Um, uh, speaking of my uh, current projects, uh, uh, of course, I'm continuing my research on graphic medicine uh, now with a special focus on women's autobiographical uh, comics. Uh, right now, I'm working on a research article which examines gynographics as a unique mode of uh, women's life writing. And I also have uh, two forthcoming book chapters uh, co-authored with, with Dr. Venkatesh. Uh, the first one, uh, uh, 
which examines the representation of uh, cure motherhood in graphic medicine, will appear in University Press of Mississippi's LGBTQ Comic Studies Reader. And my second uh, forthcoming publication uh, is a chapter on graphic medicine and uh, ecological consciousness, uh, which will be a part of uh, the Bloomsbury Handbook of Medical Environmental uh, Humanity. So these are my current projects and my forthcoming uh, publications. Amazing. And I look forward to, to reading them and I'll keep an eye out for, for, the, uh, for the publications as they, they come out. Um, thank you very much for, for talking to us today. And I'm, I'm, I'll be tuned to, to more hearing more from, from you and from your collaborators and you know hopefully to invite you back to, to a New Books Network interview. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much for this opportunity. It was great talking to you today. And uh, do read my uh, forthcoming publications. And uh, I hope we can continue the conversation later. So thank you. Thank you again for this wonderful opportunity. It was great talking to you today. Thank you too.